This is BT Techno, a regular podcast series for financial advisors wanting to remain at the forefront of strategy, regulatory and industry news. Hi everyone, my name is Matt Manning, a technical services consultant in the BT Technical Services team. We're a group of qualified individuals who can help you as advisors answer any advice technical related inquiries you may have. The Tech Hotline and Mailbox receives a wide variety of calls across a very broad range of topics, and for this podcast, I'll go through four topical and interesting questions we've received lately. Question one relates to employment termination payments and was, my client wants to retire and has accrued about 12 months worth of annual and long service leave. They have two options. Option one is going on leave and receiving the annual and long service leave as normal pay over the next about 26 fortnights. And option two is resigning now and having their unused annual and long service leave paid as a lump sum upon the termination of employment. What are the potential advantages of each option? Now, usually, but not always, where the client has such a choice, they're better off with option one. That is essentially working out the leave and not resigning until after their leave is exhausted. I'd say there's probably four potential advantages in doing so. Number one, superannuation guarantee is payable whilst on leave whereas this is not the case if they receive the leave as a termination payment. Number two, there may be a tax saving as the income could be spread across multiple financial years. So in this case, the period of leave would be from about 1 October 23 to 30 September 24. So the three months of leave that would be paid in the 24-25 financial year, which for most, including this client, would be taxed at a much lower rate than their 23-24 income, as this is a year that they're effectively resigning and retiring. Number three, they continue to accrue annual and long service leave whilst on leave. So this may vary depending on the employment contract, but by going on leave for a year, they'll likely accrue about 20 extra days of annual leave and about four extra days of long service leave. Number four, there may be a chance, albeit slight, that the employer makes their position redundant whilst on leave and they receive a redundancy payment when they're essentially going to leave the employment anyway. However, for completeness, I'd suggest that these potential advantages of option one be compared with the potential advantages of option two. Now, remember, option two is resigning and receiving the lump sum leave as a termination payment. And I'd say that there's two. Number one, if applying for age pension, the lump sum termination payment won't be included as income for social security purposes as age pension is not subject to the income maintenance period, whereas by going on leave, the amount they receive each fortnight minus the $300 a fortnight work bonus, will add to their fortnightly income for the income test. And number two, for high income earners, the maximum tax rate applicable to the unused pre-93 annual and long service leave paid upon termination, which is a maximum tax rate of 30% plus Medicare, may result in less tax payable than normal salary being taxed at marginal tax rates. Question two relates to conditions of release. We get heaps of questions on this, and there's seemingly an infinite number of scenarios, but this question was a particularly interesting one. It was, a client used to be employed by a discretionary trust that is running a business and ceased this employment arrangement a few years ago. That is, they stopped being paid a salary from the trust. However, they continued and are continuing to perform activities for the business and receive distributions from the discretionary trust. Subsequently, they've attained their preservation age in which to access their super, and the question comes down to do they satisfy the retirement definition for the purpose of the condition of release. Now, rarely do the ATO publish material on such topics, but for this one they have. 
As far as resources go, it's nothing formal like a tax ruling or an SMSF ruling. If you'd like to have a read of yourself, you can just Google the term gainful employment, discretionary trust, ATO, and it should be the first hit. So what the ATO says about this scenario is that the following factors should be taken into account, and I'll quote from the resource paper, which includes a case study that involves Charlie as the client and the discretionary trust, which runs the automobile smash repair business, And strangely, both the trust and the business name are Crackles. And I quote, The time spent by Charlie assisting the business, the trustee must be satisfied that Charlie does not intend to work more than 10 hours a week in the future. The expectation, understanding, agreement that Charlie will receive reward for his efforts, even if it's not in the traditional form of salary and wages. Whether the amount received is linked to Charlie's direct or indirect performance, whether the payments received are referred to in Crackles' trust deed, and whether the business would be able to operate or earn as much income if Charlie was not performing these duties, end quote. So whilst trust distributions are usually passive income, and therefore there's no gainful employment, in some situations receiving such distributions may still constitute a gainful employment arrangement where work is performed which results in higher income to the trust than would otherwise be the case, and therefore larger distributions are occurring as a result of that increase to the, the income. Question three was an interesting social security one and was, what is the social security assessment of insurance proceeds paid to a client whereby their principal residence has been damaged or destroyed due to a natural disaster such as a bushfire or a flood? And the good news is there is an exemption. It's a similar yet separate exemption to the temporary absence provision and sale proceeds exemption. Such proceeds are exempt from the assets of income tests for up to 12 months for when the payment was received so long as they remain in a financial investment, such as a bank account. However, if the funds are spent for another purpose, such as purchasing the car, the value of the car will still be accessible under the assets test. I think it's interesting to note that this exemption also applies to the income test, which is not the case for the sale proceeds exemption, where a client sells their principal residence and is looking to purchase another. So for the exemption relating to the receipt of the insurance proceeds... This up to 12-month exemption may be extended for up to 24 months if the client satisfies various criteria, with the main one being that they've made reasonable attempts to repair or rebuild their principal home. Extending this exemption from 12 to 24 months is assessed on a case-by-case basis upon application to a Services Australia. I think an interesting addition to this topic was another question I had quite some time ago, which was in these circumstances, can the insurance proceeds be used to make a downsizer contribution? And the answer to that is no. One of the criteria to make a downsizer contribution is that the proceeds must be from the sale of a home and, of course, be either fully or partially exempt from CGT due to the main residence exemption. Receiving insurance proceeds resulting from damage to or destruction of a main residence does not constitute a sale of a property. Question four related to excess non-concessional contributions and was, a client has received an excess non-concessional notice. If all their super is currently in an account-based pension, can the excess be released from pension phase and is the release made from the tax-free component or the taxable component or does the proportioning rule apply? So yes, the excess non-concessional can be released from an account-based pension so long as the fund allows. Just as a side note to this, there's a carve-out for defined benefit funds, so if the pension was a defined benefit, the excess non-concessional would not be able to be released. The second part relating to componentry is far more nuanced. Where the excess is paid from pension phase, the excess non-concessional 
will be released in proportion to the tax-free and taxable components that were established at commencement, as these tax-free taxable portions do not change whilst the pension is in existence. However, if the release is made from accumulation phase, the proportioning rule does not apply. In fact, oddly enough, the legislation is silent on this matter. So in practice, all the super funds that I've seen examples from will pay the excess from the taxable component where the excess non-concessional is being released from accumulation phase. So this is actually quite favourable, as despite the excess non-concessional forming part of the tax-free component upon contribution, the release of this amount is not made from the tax-free component, or at least not entirely from the pension phase and not at all from the accumulation phase. However, I'd advise against intentionally making excess non-concessional contributions, firstly because there's the penalty, of the client paying income tax on the notional earnings amount minus the 15% non-refundable tax offset, and secondly, knowingly making a contribution that you know that you can't because you're restrained by the caps and do so intentionally to have refunded does seem to have the potential to be seen as part 4A general tax avoidance. And just a comment about excess non-concessional contributions, and I understand from our phone calls that often by the time you become aware it's too late because the client did so themselves or perhaps on the advice of their accountant. But probably the two most common causes of excess non-concessional contributions that I've seen lately is firstly not checking the client's super balance or not using the correct total super balance um, figure, that is 30 June of the previous financial year. So the total super balance is at 30 June 23 will be the relevant figure for contributions that occur during the 23-24 financial year. And secondly, not checking the client's previous non-concessional contributions. So for the 23-24 financial year, they'll not be able to trigger the bring forward if they already did so during 21-22 or the 22-23 financial years by receiving non-concessional contributions of more than 110000 during either of these financial years. If you'd like a tool to assist you maximise a client's non-concessional contributions without breaching the cap, please email technical at btfinancialgroup.com with the subject line of non-concessional calculator subscribe and we'll send you the latest version and add you to the distribution list as the thresholds and caps change. Issues such as these is what our team loves to discuss, not only in our fortnightly BT Academy webinar series, but also when we speak to advisors around strategies and legislation support when formulating advice for your clients. Don't forget, you can watch our previous BT Academy episodes, plus register for upcoming live sessions, which will allow you to participate in live polling, Q&A and discussions. And you can do this by heading to www.bt.com.au slash professional and following the links to the BT Academy webinar series. Michael Tran will be hosting our next fortnightly technical webinar on Wednesday the 25th of October at noon New South Wales time. The session is titled Age Old old age questions and the session aims to help you understand the financial aspects of aged care including a brief overview of the assessment process for securing a residential aged care place, a review of the various fees and charges aged care residents can pay and how these can be funded, advice strategies and considerations that can reduce aged care fees and further considerations within the context of a return to a higher interest rate environment. In the meantime, if you have any technical questions you can contact the BT Technical Services team at 1-800-655-901 or by emailing technical at btfinancialgroup.com. Thanks for joining me. Until next time, bye for now. BT Technos, and now you know. 
Join us next time to keep ahead of the curve for strategy, regulatory and industry news. This podcast has been developed for financial advisor use only and provides general information only. It does not take into account any particular individual's objectives, financial situations or needs.